0: It's possible for us, isn't it, to sometimes miss the glaringly, blatantly obvious when it's right in front of our faces. Do you know what I mean? When we are slightly distracted, it happens probably more often, but we just miss, maybe, maybe I'm speaking on behalf of you know men, it probably happens to men more, but it certainly happens to me a lot. You just miss the really obvious thing. You miss it. I wonder what you see when you look at the nativity scene. We have a little bit of a mishmash. We've got lots of hair. And we've got lots of children and a baby Jesus. So we've got some gaps in the nativity scene. So you're going to have to use your imagination a little bit. But I wonder what you see when you look at the nativity scene. I guess um, this is a story that we have been telling and retelling and telling again for 2,000 years. And for the purposes often of entertaining parents at children's nativities, we've added all sorts of interesting little extra bits. I know now a lot about the innkeeper's wife But I'm not sure where I've been able to find it in the Bible. And I've come to admire the qualities of the donkey that carried Mary all the way to Bethlehem. You know, it's funny, isn't it, how we've added on to this picture. We've got the star that we follow, the wise men follow. And it sort of shines down this like laser beam over the stable where Mary and Joseph and Jesus are. And you sort of think it points to where they are, but it also adds a nice glow and a nice little bit of light, doesn't it, as well. And this is the town, Bethlehem sat in the background, and whenever I look at the town Bethlehem, on the Christmas cards I've got, you know, the Christmas cards that your Christian friends buy for you that are trying to keep Christ in Christmas, all the little houses in Bethlehem all look idyllic. It's like, I would want one of them for my second home. It always looks incredibly beautiful, and then we've got the manger, and you sort of look at the manger, and you think, yeah, Mary and Joseph adapted, they did really well to do this, and sometimes, with all these extra additions, with all these nativities that we see, with this lovely nostalgic lovely story that we've learned over and over again over the years. I think, I wonder if we miss the point a little bit. See, it's a really clear, obvious picture. If you do a bit of digging around in your Bible, when you think about the star, or when you think about the manger, or what did Ethan read out for us? But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one for me, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. When we think about that, it is pointing clearly. It's a blatantly obvious, unmissable signpost to Jesus. It's an unmissable signpost that God is working out his plans. It's unmissable that God is keeping his promises. I don't know how this resonates with you, what it means to you. It brings me a a, a troublesome worried, sometimes anxious 36-year-old guy, a lot of peace at Christmas, to know that in the middle of my messed up life, God is working out his plans, God is keeping his promises. So when I flick through my Bible, and I see right at the start, at the start of Genesis, I see God, the word been there, and I flick on a few more pages, and I read about how Jesus is gonna restore the broken relationship with God. And then I flick right back to the end and I see Jesus there too. In fact, I see Jesus all the way through and I look to this story at Bethlehem right at the center of God's plan and I am reassured. And in a world where we have tons of people happy to break promises, happy to make promises they can't keep, we have a God who we can look back through the Bible, see the promises that he's made, And celebrate that just now and be reassured and confident this this Christmas. So the next time that you are, I know some of us actually are desperately keen already to throw away our Christmas cards. I know there are people like that around who don't even like to put them up. They're desperate to bring them down. But when you look back at that nativity scene, when you see Bethlehem, when you see the star, when you see the manger, I want you to remember these were the signs, signs that would affirm for the shepherds, affirm for the wise men, And affirm for us that this was the Messiah. God was fixing things. Luke 1 1 and Luke 2 1 really set the scene for this story. Luke writes really cleverly and he wants us to think about what he's saying. Luke 1 1 says, In the time of Herod. Luke 2 1 says, In those days, Caesar. I don't know if any of you have been to see Star Wars yet. Who's been to see Star Wars? You can put your hands up if you like. There's a few of you have been to see Star Wars. For those, Tim, proudly there, blasting it straight up. If you've not been to see it yet, you probably have seen it, and you will know as soon as those words start to slide across the bottom of the screen a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, the kind of world that you are entering, that music sends a shiver, or at least a shiver down my, down my spine, and you think, yeah, I know where we're headed here. I know this is, this is about good and evil. This is about lightsabers. Like, hello again. Nice to see you again. Lightsabers, it's about Princess Leia. In the costume that I am well past now, it's about all that sort of stuff. We know the world we're entering, and we know that same world. When Luke writes, in those days, Herod, or in those days, Caesar, he's telling us about the landscape of the time. In those days, Caesar, what you can read is the authority is not with the Hebrew people anymore. They are subordinate to the Roman authority. And Caesar either is about to or has proclaimed himself some kind of deity. He has all the power. In those days, Herod, for Herod, think ISIS or think Saddam Hussein or something like that. That's how we can perceive these times. These were the times that Mary and Joseph were running around trying to find somewhere to give birth to a baby. And this was a dark, dark time. When Luke writes like this, he wants us to know, look, this is the setting. The Hebrew people are not what we would perceive to be in control of this. This is a troubled time. And if you are, if you were... A Hebrew, if you were a Jewish person at this time, you haven't heard from God for 400 years. Not a peep. Nothing. This is a dark, dark time. And in that time, Luke cleverly narrates for us there are a waiting people. All the characters that you come across, that, that we've read about a little bit, that you come through in the first couple of chapters of Luke are people who are waiting. Simeon is a guy who's just staying alive to meet the Messiah. Anna, the prophetess, never leaves the temple. The wise men are searching the scriptures and searching everywhere for the Messiah. I guess this is what you do in hard times. You turn back to God. This is a people waiting for a Messiah. I don't know what kind of Messiah you'd want if you were growing up in ISIS-governed territory. I would want one that came with a whack money and a huge army behind him. And a massive clout of authority. Do you know what I mean? That's what I would be looking for. I would want a superhero. I would want him to blast them with whatever weapons he could get his hand on. And the, Israel, the children of Israel are waiting for Messiah. And if I was one of them, I would be hoping for some kind of king to come from some distant land on some fantastic animals that we'd never heard of or seen. And come and destroy the Roman Empire. But that is not the Messiah that God sends. Because that is not the Messiah that the people needed. God sent his son. God sent a baby. God sent somebody who would be vulnerable to disease the same way we are. God sent somebody to be born in Bethlehem, not much of a town. To grow up in Nazareth, not much of a place. To be born where there wasn't even any room for him, even though his mom and dad were on the run. To be born in very humble circumstances. And he sent his son like this because that is what people needed. I guess with a bit of time distance and a bit of cultural distance, we'd look back and say, no, that's that's not what they would have wanted. That's not what they would have needed. And yet it was what they needed. I guess when we think about our world today and we think about how small our voice is sometimes and we think about the amount of trouble that's going on over the world and we think about how the politicians make all the decisions and And the wars, that we just never seem to get a break from wars. It's one war after another war after another war. And we think, what kind of saviour does this world need? I want to remind you at Christmas that the battles that we face are not battles of flesh and blood. The battles that we face are spiritual battles. Behind all that trouble is sin. And for that sin, God sends his saviour. I want to... Put Christ back at the center of your Christmas and remind you and remind me that He's just what we need. So, Luke very cleverly contrasts um, two characters for us. um, And we can see in their responses what they make of Jesus as a rival. Herod, not happy on one hand, and the wise men we read, search diligently. And it gives us the opportunity just to explore that. How do we respond? to the king how do we respond this christmas to the messiah i uh, i love the wise men they've been on a real been on a real journey not only you know the literal journey that they took but you know how accurately their story has been recorded we we know that there were three gifts and we take from the three gifts or well, there must have been three of them and they came a long way so we put them on camels and they came from somewhere we don't really know exactly where it was perhaps somewhere in persia so we put them in fancy coats and fancy fancy hats we decorate them up then we say, well, let's give, make it a bit more interesting. We'll make one fat, one thin, and one old, or one young, or whatever else. And then we, we put them on camels, and we just exaggerate the story over and over. We give them personality and all the rest of it. And I don't know how, how they traveled. Maybe it doesn't really matter. But we know that when they got to Jerusalem, they caused a storm. The little bit of reading I've done suggests that if you came from Persia to Jerusalem, you probably came on white horses that traveled really fast. And there probably weren't just three of you. There were probably lots of you. But I guess we don't know. Could have, been, could have been one wise man who was just very generous and had three gifts. So it could have been 100 guys on horses. What we definitely know is that when they got to Jerusalem, Herod was really freaked out. Maybe it wasn't their fancy dress that freaked him out. Maybe it was their question. We read a little bit about Herod, historically and in the Bible, and we know the way that he killed all the children in, in Bethlehem, as, we, as we've read. But we also know that to protect his throne, he killed his wife and his two sons. This was the kind of guy that he was. So when the wise men come and ask the question, where is he who is born king of the Jews? That's going to really tip this paranoid guy over the edge. I think it's really revealing when we see Herod's response. We paint him, don't we, as the pantomime bad guy the pantomime villain and he is the bad guy but his responses actually aren't that different to ours sure we're not going to go away and try and arrange the deaths of a bunch of kids so hopefully that hopefully we're, we're above that but in the same way that Herod just sees the threat to his own existence so clearly it's just such a threat to him Jesus coming along He just has to do away with that threat as soon as he can. He doesn't even entertain Jesus. I think that's really helpful when we think about what we do with Jesus in our lives. Sometimes we reject him because we're just so desperate to live and enjoy life as much as we can. The wise men don't respond this way. The wise men we read, don't we, search diligently. They abandon, if you like, their homes and their jobs and their careers. And they search. And I guess we don't really know how long they search for, but they search for a long time until they found Jesus. It's interesting to note the process that they go through. They searched for him. They found him. They saw him. They bowed to him. They worshipped him. And they gave their gifts to him. It's perhaps not the perfect sort of Explanation of salvation and sanctification. If you read a really thick Bible book, you probably find a better one, but it's not a bad place to start. They searched diligently for him, and when they found him, they worshipped him. Just made me think, I guess we've not got very long to go, made me think really quickly about how it makes us respond at Christmas, where we are on our Christian walk. Are we searching for him thoroughly? Really easy when you're a Christian, isn't it, just to, just to go through it, just to wander through your journey of Christianity, get to live to a ripe old age and look back, think about what you've done. These wise men give us a really good lesson, I think. They dropped everything and searched for him diligently. The psalmists ask a really interesting question in Psalm 119. It's a, it's, a, it's a question I've wrestled with a little bit over my life. How can a young man keep his way pure? And I guess we could add to that, how can an old lady stay faithful? How can a rich businessman manage to keep his eye on God? How can whoever stay faithful? I guess we could add anything to that. And then the psalmist goes on to answer it. And as he answers it, he explains that we've got to keep on searching diligently for God. Psalmist says, and it's a long psalm, so I've got a bit of it. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I want to challenge you really simply, I guess, this Christmas. Something for you to think about as you go into the madness of the next week. Because sometime around 8 o'clock on Christmas Day, you'll switch Enders off or down to Namby and you'll go, what was all that about? What happened there? What was that? That was just a blur. I don't know how I didn't punch... Uncle so-and-so, I didn't know how I didn't do this or I do that. I want you to think about your Christian life and your Christian character. Are you searching diligently? Is it something you would drop everything for? I I guess you ask yourself the question, what is a wise man? If you were to tell your colleagues at work that you were going to drop everything and spend a year studying the Bible, they'd say you were a madman. If you were to tell them that the gifts that you'd been given the strengths and the skills that you had, you weren't going to use them to earn a 40 or 50 grand salary. You're actually going to drop that and spend some time helping out in a dropping center or something like that. They'd say, you're a madman. And yet, God would look down, I believe, quite firmly and say, you're a wise man. There's wisdom in that. Final challenge. What are the gifts that you have? We find that after the wise men search diligently... They drop their gifts off and honor Jesus with their gifts. We ask our children over and over again, don't we? What are you getting for Christmas? What are you getting? What are you getting? What are you getting? And we do that same thing, actually, with church sometimes. I go here because they do this, and I get this, and I get this. It's probably a good question to ask ourselves. What are we giving? What have we been given? And what are we passing on? Who is a wise man today? It's a good Way to finish, I think. Who is a wise man today? Somebody who is seeking after Jesus.